I want to welcome you to the Pro Mindset Podcast. The Pro Mindset Podcast is all about diving into the headspace that results in championship performance. High-performing athletes, winners, have this mental flow and have a positive headspace for their performances and success. Join me, Craig Doman, sports attorney and NFL agent, on this podcast. I will interview pro athletes, college athletes, football coaches, and sports personalities. Together, we can discover how you can get in the flow and have your own pro mindset. Okay, today on Pro Mindset, I want to welcome Bob Tewksbury. Bob is a renowned mental coach, author. Bob, welcome to our show today. Thank you. It's uh, it's great to be on your show and to talk about mindset and yeah, it's it's exciting. I can't wait to see what you have to ask me. Okay, so tell everyone the the title of your book. Mm-hmm. So the book is Ninety Percent Mental: All Star Pitcher Turned Mental Skills Coach Reveals the Hidden Game of Baseball. Well, Bob, let's dive right into Ninety Percent Mental. You know, I played high school sports, played college sports, and coaches all the time used to say. You know, when it was getting tough, you know, they would basically yell at you, 90% mental. What what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's a great question. I think certainly it's a – everyone talks about it. It's like, you know, telling your aunt, you know, I love you, auntie, and you you don't really. You just say it because you're supposed to. You know, it's like 90% mental is if you got to fix something, it must be mental. Look, I think physical talent can take you to a certain level and anything past that, the difference is what's going on between the years. And the mental game is, you know, what you think about, your perspective on things, you know, what your expectations are, how you perceive situations, what does the mental game consist of? And it consists of, you know, our thoughts, our feelings, our behaviors, and there's science that prove what that means. So there's a lot of talented people out there that have the same physical attributes. What makes one person better than the other is generally what's in their mind. 100% agree with you about the 90% mental. And I totally have seen over and over again that when you have similarly situated athletes, guys that have similar skill sets, height, weight, and speed, arm talent, things like that, depending on the sport and depending on the position. The thing that allows guys to compete at a higher level is obviously the mental game. And the thing that helps guys perform at a level beyond their physical abilities is always their mental game. Mm -hmm. So let's dive into that, that mental phase. You know, you as a pitcher, you know, when you were in the zone, where was your mind? And how did you get there? And how did you intentionally try to get there? And, mm. and what did you what did you do when you got out and you needed to get get it back? Yeah, well, it's trial and error. You know, you don't think about anything. You're you're hyper focused on the task at hand. Your movements are smooth and easy. You're not worried about consequence or failure. You know, you're just focused in in what's going on and. You know, I think that there's a lot of people that try to get in the zone on a regular basis. My belief is, and there's a lot of research on this, and this is just my belief, but my belief is that those moments happen when everything clicks are rare. And the majority of the time, it's managing the emotions that will allow you to to get through certain aspects of a game to be successful. I had a perfect game for innings uh, in 1990 and you know I knew what was going on I was totally aware how important this was and uh, I ended up with a one hitter that game was easy and then you know there's other games in the you know right from the first inning you start out like the guy hits three rockets and the next thing you know you're reeling but if you hang in there and you you work through it by the end of the game, you're in that same type of zone. And I think that's ultimately what you try to do is to work through that. So what do you do to to do that is it's trial and error. 
you know, as a pitcher, dealing with that inner voice, which I call the little man, is important because the little man directs your focus, your attention, and your behavior. And I learned how to control that voice, which allowed me to have more success when I was 33 than when I was 23. Hang on, Bob. Yep. Okay, so you you talk about the inner voice, the little voice that's talking to you off your shoulder. That yeah, the little man. Look, the little man. What was your methodology? What was your go-to to get it to shut up when it went negative? Yeah. The inner, the inner voice, the little man can be positive or negative. Most of the time it likes to go negative. Right. Exactly, Craig. What I learned is what I teach. Number one is to be aware of the voice. Ah, there it is. That's what amazes me about Tiger. Sometimes you'll see him tee, up, tee a ball up and then he'll start a swing and he stops. Or he'll get on the tee box and step behind it. So I, I don't know if he has negative, I'm sure he has negative thoughts, but that is the action. There's the awareness. This isn't right. I'm not going to continue to throw this pitch if I'm afraid I'm going to throw a ball. So the first part is awareness. The second part is to, to erase or delete. I used to hit my glove with my leg or literally shake my head like I was shaking, you know, these negative thoughts out of my head. And the third part was to breathe so that I changed my physiology, take a deep breath, okay, reset. And the fourth part was to reframe my action on the task at hand, all right, throw a good little pitch, you know, whatever that was. So that's my process for doing that. And sometimes you have time to make that change. You know, as a pitcher, if I'm on the mound and I have that thought, I can step off. You know, sometimes it happens when your body's already in motion and you know it's too late. You know, like, oh, God, I'm going to, no, oh, and then it's too late. I shouldn't have thrown that pitch. So that's my answer to the resetting and working with that because you can't not think it. You know, everyone says, think positive. Well, what does that mean? You know, thinking positive doesn't mean you're going to have a positive action because, you know, it's not focused on the task. What's what you should think is think on executing the task. I want to hit the ball at this spot in the fairway. I want to, you know, hit the back of the rim. Not, you know, I'm a I'm a good player and I'm going to make this shot. You know, that doesn't hurt, but I I believe in being more focused on the task. Okay, Bob. So let me give you a fair introduction here. You played for six major league baseball teams as a pitcher. You won over a hundred games. And you had a one hitter. Mm-hmm. And so as a pitcher, you run into these kind of situations. It's the first batter of the game. That is a, that's only going to happen one time in the game. The, the second thing that can happen is it's 3-0 and count. Bases are loaded. Mm. And you're, it's a tie game. You're up by one. You're up by two. But the reality of it is whatever the situation is, you've got to get the batter out. Mm-hmm. and you're down in the count, and the next pitch is a must strike. The third situation is, and I'm just making these up, mm-hmm. you're pitching, let's say, for the Cardinals, you're playing the Red Sox, and Carl Yaskrinski or somebody like that has hit two home runs on you. Mm-hmm. Now it's his third at bat. He knows he's got your number. Mm-hmm. Your little man's saying, hey, look who's on deck. When you're trying to focus on the batter at the plate, the little man's telling you, look who's on deck. Mm-hmm. He's, coming, he's coming again. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yep. And then, the, and then the fourth situation I can think of, you look over to the dugout, and your pitching coach is hanging up the phone. Mm. So now you kind of have eyes behind your head. You, you go look in the bullpen, and you go, oh, shit, somebody's, oh, so-and-so's warming up. Yeah. Okay. All four of those situations are they real? Absolutely. Okay. So little man, in my mind, likes to show up in situations like that. Absolutely, you're 100. percent And he really shows up if you're. It shows up when you're unconfident or uncomfortable. Um, and it, it depends on again, it's the perception. So I think. Per your first example, the first hitter of the game. You know, I was always really anxious until I get the first hitter of the game out. 
and then all the butterflies started to fly in order. If if the first guy of the game got on, then my little man voice may go, okay, well, I just got to get a double play if I'm feeling good. If I'm in a funk, it may say, oh, shit, here we go again. You know, the, the 3-0 count is a great example because, you know, you don't want to walk in a run. It's late in the game. You have to throw a strike. And if you're thinking about, I have to throw a strike here, if I don't, I'm going to give up a run, then you're going to throw a ball and you're going to give up a run. So that's a key point in which you need to step back and say, okay, throw a good low fastball here, and then you got to do it again. Um, he's probably not swinging at the first one, so you could steal a strike, but he's more than likely going to swing at the second one. So that's going to be a good pitch. But because you've thrown the 3-0 pitch over, you're starting to get a little bit of confidence. You know, I never faced – Yaz, but certainly was a fan of his and, and know him. And But, you know, it's no different than Bonds or McGuire being in the on-deck circle. And you're thinking, you know, I don't want to face him. So that voice escalates like, I better get this guy out right here. So it just starts putting pressure on you, and it takes away from the focus of the task at hand. People have, you know, meant to find what mental toughness is and, you know, a number of colleagues and I have talked about this, think it's focusing on the right thing at the right time without distraction. That's mental toughness. And I think when people are not mentally tough or when their game has cracks in it is when they don't focus on what's going on, whether it's the little man or whether it's some other distraction you know, the pitching coach picking up the phone. That happened to me in Toronto my rookie year. It's funny when you were saying that, Craig, I was, recall, I was pitching that exhibition stadium, the old home of the Blue Jays. It was the first inning. For, I must have got the first two guys on base. And I look over and the bullpen's going. <laughs> that was a, and, that's a shot of confidence right there, right? Yeah, Lou Pinello was a manager. Lou didn't like me because I didn't throw hard enough. He didn't like pitchers to begin with. But it pissed me off, and I ended up pitching, I think, into the middle innings, which was a good response to that. Obviously, it, uh, it was a jolt to my confidence when, when I looked over and said, you got to be kids. It's the third hitter of the game, and he's got the bullpen going already. Okay, Bob. So there's typically three time zones that athletes live in. The first time zone is like the night before – or the day, the morning of a game, the people haven't started coming through the turnstiles and coming in the stadium yet. So there's, there's a space between where you're at and when you're going to be performing. Mm-hmm. The second one is at that moment before you do a repetition, before you do a play, whether you're batting, whether you're a quarterback and, and you're taking a snap or a pitcher and you're throwing a pitch, that little man likes to show up big time right there, right? Mm-hmm. And then the third one is every sport has a flow where they push the pause button. So for pitchers in baseball, it's obviously when you guys are on offense. Mm-hmm. You're up at bat and you're hanging out in the dugout. It's not before the game. You're not ready to throw a pitch right this second, but you have a chance to kind of collect your thoughts and come up with a new strategy juice up or or pump up your confidence or, you know, let the seed of doubt take over. Mm. So how do you recommend your athletes and performers in those three different time zones to potentially put duct tape on (laughs) little man? (laughs) I love that. That's a great picture. Duct tape on little man. No, well, yeah, no, that's great. Well, I use the same the same strategy for all three times. And I'll tell you what I used. I said, throw strike one, get the leadoff hitter out. Throw strike one, get the leadoff hitter out. Throw strike one, get the that, – that was my mantra uh, before, you know, hours before a game when I was anxious. That was my mantra in between innings to stay focused because it is easy to get distracted when you – come in from the dugout or from the field into the dugout, especially if you have a long inning, you know, when you're sitting there for a long time, 
you know, you have a pulse and, and tempo to the game that, you know, gets broken. And that happens. Pitchers oftentimes have a long inning and go back out and just seem like they've totally lost their mojos. You know, and so I, I like to call these words or phrases anchor statements. The metaphor I use for the athletes is if, if you're fishing in an, a lake and you decide not to drop an anchor, it's a nice clear day and you just want to coast and let the boat go wherever, and a storm comes up on you, then the boat goes wherever the storm takes it and likely not a good place. The same thing happens in performance. If we, if athletes don't anchor themselves with something that they can weather the storm with, because storms will happen on every game, then your performance will crash. And so why not drop an anchor? And these words or phrases like throw strike one, get the lead off hitter out are meant for me are, are ways to keep me from the other distracting internal voice that needs to be duct taped from taking over. And so developing those anchors is a personal, it's something that's very personal, but it's something that's focused on the task or a feeling that is just a, just a healthy distraction so that you don't lose your focus on what you're about to do. No matter if it's the night before or leading up to the game or in between innings. So where my brain goes when you share that information about anchor statements is validating your identity. As an athlete, you need to know that you're a baller. You're the dude. You're something. You, you get to pick what you, who you are. It has to be something that obviously is extremely positive. If I was going to coach my son quarterback in college, I would say, hey, son, when you throw a touchdown pass, what kind of emotion does that give you? When you kill a DB who's been talking smack to you all game, <laughs> you beat that guy. What kind of emotion do you get? Mm -hmm. I would replay it back to him and say, that is an anchor statement. Mm -hmm. Be because the reality of it is you're, you're playing, it's almost like you're playing cards and you get to choose whether the little man has a trump card or not. Exactly. Or do you have a trump card that trumps what he's got? Mm-hmm. Right? It's kind of a dance that goes on during a competition that when you're feeling it, you got the trump card. And when you're not feeling it, you feel like the little man's playing the trump card. No question. And I think you're right, Craig. I think, you know, the feeling associated with that, those emotions are powerful. You know, if you can associate a word with that to describe that, your body connects with that. You know, how it feels to, you know, have thrown the TD pass that, you know, beat the D-back that was trash talking or to do something that no one thought you could do or showed no belief in you. You know, those are powerful and, and they're they're personal and they're your experiences. They're, they're the athlete's experiences that they can recall. And that that's a powerful way to – because we choose to recall what we want to recall. You know, we can recall, you know, it's filtering. Um, you filter out all the good stuff and focus on the bad stuff. And that happens a lot with people that think that they have to be perfect or if they have unrealistic expectations. So you're right. And I think that – you know, those words or phrases can be built from an emotional response, just like you mentioned. Okay, Bob, you're in a, and I'm sure this happened to you, even though you didn't throw a lot of balls, it didn't look like from looking up your history. <laughs> and no pitcher throws all strikes, but, hey, you did a pretty good job. <laughs> you're in a particular inning, it doesn't matter, and the first batter up, you go four balls and walk him to first. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the second batter – your little man is saying something like, here we go again. Mm -hmm. And the first three pitches are balls. So you've thrown seven balls in a row. If you I wouldn't know what that felt like, but I can. I'm just, you've seen it. You've seen it. <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen okay. it. Yeah. Okay. If you play in today, if you could go back, you know, not go back in time, but if you could go back and put on a uniform and show up in the big leagues and have a 90 mile an hour fastball, and you're in that situation where you've just thrown seven consecutive balls, knowing what you know now, doing the research that you've done, doing the coaching that you've done, 
doing the trial and error that you've done, where does your mind go? Mm. Wow. Okay. So where the mind goes, well, it starts after the first guy. Um, you know, the slippery slope starts after the first walk and how you perceive that walk, you know, with a, with the pitches close, did the umpire squeeze you? If he did squeeze you, however you're going to respond to that. But nonetheless, it's a walk. So now, you know, if your thought process is, I need a ground ball to get a double play, which is appropriate, you respond differently to that. And if it's, oh, shit, the first guy's on, don't walk the guy, then you start to go ball one, ball two, ball three. So at that point, the pitching coach may come out or the catcher, and you won't hear a thing that they say because you're so in your own head that back then it would be like, I hope I throw a strike and I worry about what people think. So to your question, I'm kind well, of Bob, talking. just a sidebar, just a sidebar. Most likely if the pitching coach comes out, mm-hmm. he would say something to the effect of, go ahead and throw another ball because the next batter will get a triple play. I don't think so. Uh, No, but I think if they, but whenever they see that's positive thinking, but that's not realistic. Um, (laughs) Exactly. You know, and seriously, when the pitching coach goes out, you don't really hear a thing you say that he says. But to that point, what I know now would, you know, be what I learned later in my career. I would say, all right, just try to get back in the count by throwing a good pitch. And if you miss and it's a walk, then you've got to, this is when you've really got to regroup and say, okay, I'm still, you know, there's a mantra that pitchers use. You know, you're only one pitch away. You could be in a bases loaded, no out situation and have the count three and O and literally be one pitch away from getting out of the inning. So that's always the hope of a pitcher is, you know, to be in a situation where you're one pitch away, but that's all, that's a state of mind. That's a, that's a aspect of thinking. I'm one pitch away. So, you know, you're controlling the, the voice with optimism versus, Oh God, here we go again. You know, what's, I'm going to be knocked out and your Stremski's coming up and, or bonds is coming up or Griffey's coming up and I'm in a whole, lot of trouble right here so yeah I, I you know I wish I'd had a mental skills coach when I was in New York because it would have really helped a lot less suffering you know than what I went through you know with trial and error so where does your son play quarterback well he's at last chance you he's in Independence Kansas at last uh-huh. chance you you know two fun facts one is he's at his fourth school in four years mm. it, and two is he showed up there in January about six weeks ago, and there was eight quarterbacks. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and they're going to play a seven-game season starting in a couple of weeks. Oh. And he was named the starter like two days ago. Oh. So there was a lot of mental challenges for him and all the boys, as you might expect, when you start out with eight and only one gets to start. Oh, yeah. And what's the leash on that one? Exactly. With well, a, with a seven game season. Well, it's really a one day contract. Yeah. You know, it's like tomorrow, if you don't take care of business and practice today, that could change tomorrow. That's true. Yeah. Right? Football's yeah, football's all about what are you doing for me now? Exactly. Then I have another son that's at Nebraska that's a starting outside linebacker that led the team in tackles last year. Wow. Cool. Thanks. Exciting. So they're taking after dad a little bit in the football route. They've taken it a, a lot farther than I did, <laughs> and they're they're a lot better than I was. And so, yeah. the thing that well, that's I, why you went to law school, right? Absolutely. Well, one of the things that I've learned is that exactly what you teach and coach, which is the mental aspect of the game, is where you get your edge. Mm-hmm. So, how can you help your kids be the best they can be? And it's certainly from the mental side. Totally. Yeah, and there's so many resources now, you know. I mean, mental skills coaching is finally catching up, you know, at least in, in the baseball world, and I'm sure it's this way in football with specialty camps and quarterback camps. And But in baseball, they 
and people started out, well, I'm going to get a hitting coach or I'm going to get a pitching coach and youth level people. And, and then it's strength and conditioning and it's followed the same pattern as it did in, in the big leagues where now it's people are addressing the mental skills part of this. And that's why I have a lot of clients that are 15 to 20 years old because they realize that the mental skill part of it is important. And, and so that's what happened in baseball. It started out with, you know, it started out with strength and conditioning in the in the mid '80s, and then it went to nutrition when GNC and all that stuff came, and and supplements were around, and maybe went a little too far in that end. And then now it's the mental skills part, where you know we're learning more about the science behind imagery and research on positive self-talk and positive psychology and all that stuff. So it is it, you know, and I think depending on the sport, you know, certainly as a quarterback, which I just can't imagine that the complexity of their thinking patterns and, and, you know, the reaction time to what they do is, is remarkable to have the, the field to throw a 60 yard out over the D over the D backs, you know, reach into the arms of a receiver and about read and react in about three or four seconds is amazing. So that that's a physical skill, but the ability to slow the game down from a cognitive standpoint to be in command and to, you know, if you underthrow that guy and it's picked or you overthrow it and it's incomplete, you know, how do you respond to that for the next play? And that's mental. That's not a physical attribute. That's a mental attribute. It's all mental. Okay, Bob, I'm going to take you down memory lane. Let's go back to August of 1990. Mm-hmm. And you are pitching for the Cardinals against the Astros. And you had that one hitter you referenced. Mm-hmm. You know, and looking up your reports here, it said you only threw 80 pitches. It was your second straight shutout. Mm-hmm. And that during that time span, the, over 10 starts, Ending in that game, you had an ERA of 1.68. What the heck was going on in your life off the field? What was going on in your life, in your mind, during that 10-game stretch where you might have been one of the best pitchers in the bigs? Mm. Yeah, that was a fun time. I remember that, you know, back-to-back shutouts. And I was was trying to survive, Craig, and I had no idea – uh, what was going on because I really put myself into a bubble. I had just gotten married, um, and we got married in January of 89. I was on the scrap heap uh, for that season. Basically, I had surgery in 88, was a minor league free agent in 89, played AAA with the Cardinals, won 13 games, uh, got brought up for a little bit in September, Pitched well, started the 1990 season back in the minor leagues because there was a there was a lockout. The owners had locked the players out, so when they started the season, they were expanded rosters. Um, I started the season with the team in the bullpen. I got sent back to AAA, and then in May, uh, whenever I came up, Ted Simmons, now in the Hall of Fame met me outside the door at Bush Stadium, Old Bush, and he said, you're going to pitch on Saturday against the Expos, and if you do well, you'll get another start. If you don't do well, and he just kind of shrugged at me like, I don't know what's going to happen. And it scared the hell out of me at first, but it empowered me after that because I think every athlete wants to know, you know, if I do my job, I got a job versus, you know, a lot of people who do their job and they don't still don't know where they stand. So I pitched well that day. I won. I figured I had a mulligan. I would get the ball again in five days. I get the ball again in five days, pitched well. The whole thing for me was I had been up and down, you know, since 1986. I had surgery. The whole thing for me was just to survive. So I literally was in survival mode of I need to pitch well every game in order to stay here. My wife was a huge uh, part of this, supporting me and being there for me. St. Louis was a great – you talk about synergy. St. Louis is a terrific place to play. I felt very comfortable there. And 
I had a manager that believed in my abilities as a pitcher, and all of that together is what allowed me to be in that space during that 10-game. You know, it was accumulation of a lot of different things. Okay, Bob, so when I was a kid, baseball was my favorite sport, Mm. and I collected baseball cards, and I would memorize statistics, and this was back before the Internet, and I I was a huge George Brett fan. Mm. And, and if he went four for five, I knew what his batting average was going to be after the end of the game. Hmm. If he went three for, you know, three for four, I knew. I got I just, a great George Brett story I can share with you after. I def- so. Okay, I won't forget you on that one. But here's what happened. After you went eight and three and had that second consecutive shutout and had a one hitter, if my statistics show me accurately after that, you went like two and eight. Mm-hmm. Or two and six. Yeah, and six. I might have been. I finished the year 10 and 9, I think, or 11 and 9. And nine. Yeah, 10 and 9. 10 and, nine. and it was yep. your first double-digit win season, which started a career, you know, got you going in St. Louis where you won one, two, three, four, five, five consecutive years of double-digit wins. But what happened after that epic game that put you in a position, I mean, it could have been lots of different things. could have been your offense went dead on you or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you went two and six. Well, I don't recall, but I would assume, like you said, I mean, there's factors offensively. But my guess is is that I fell out of the cocoon, you know, that I may have started to look too much at statistics or my success. And you do that with a couple of things, a couple of ways. One is, God, can I keep doing this because they expect me to do this? And or can I keep doing this? Am I really this good? You know, why is it, why is it? This whoa, is the whoa, big whoa. Leagues? Why, 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 why would you go there? Well, I think athletes do that. I think, why? you know, because I don't think, I think some people fear success or are not um, comfortable with it because they don't, they don't know how good they can be and their internal self-esteem, if you will, of who they really, who they think they are does not match what they're capable of. I think there's a lot of people who underperform because they have a governor, if you will, on their own abilities. I think that's a real thing because if I do this this long, oh my God, that could be really good and make all kinds of money and I would do this and that. And that, that feels uncomfortable to some people. So, you know, for me, it was that that might have I don't that was not that issue then because I was in survival mode. But I have had that. If you look at the 94 season, I started out seven and oh, and then I lost my next seven. Um, And I think that's where I got into it. It was my free agent year, you know, coming off some good seasons. And I'm thinking, God, I could, you know, I'm a little kid from a town with a blinking light in New Hampshire growing up in a trailer with, you know, divorced parents sleeping in one end of a trailer with three other kids, you know, and all of a sudden I'm going to be a millionaire, you know, so those things happen and, you know, that they can be uncomfortable. Okay, Bob, I don't disagree with you. I don't dispute it. I know it happens all the time. Think about two situations. One we've already discussed. Right before you're going to perform, the little man tells you that you can't do it or you, you don't, you're not worthy of it or what gives you a negative vibe about what you're about to do. The second one is when you sit back and you look at your press clippings, you feel the adoration of the fans and your teammates, and you get, you're having a beer and you're like, shit, I've won seven in a row. Mm-hmm. You talk to your agent. He's like, "You keep this stuff up, bro. You're gonna get it. You're gonna get rich, mm-hmm. right?" And then yep. every, everybody's like, you know, expecting you to go out and be perfect every game. And then all of a sudden, you start putting pressure on you. So now it's not a little man; it's a little army. <laughs> That's true. And, and and now you're marching uphill. I mean, it's like you you're in trouble, right? Yep. And, yep. and so. The thing that I think I think there's and because when you were sharing that with me, I'm thinking you're absolutely right. That happens. That happens. Players outperform their expectations, mm-hmm. and because they don't 
increase their expectations and, and change their identity and their perception of who they are and what they can accomplish, all of a sudden now the governor kicks in and they start performing at a lower level so they can even out where they thought they were. 100%. Yep, well said. Okay, and so let's, t- let's, just, let's just discuss this on how in the heck should a player respond when he finds himself in a position where he's achieving way more success than he anticipated? What's your perspective on that? If you were 7-0 and and again and you were back, you know, in 93, mm. and, or was it 93 or 94? 94. 94? If you're back in 94 and you're 7-0, and no one wants you know now. Mm. And was Joe Torre your, your man? Who's your yeah. manager? Yep. So Joe Torrey's your manager. You got rabid fans in, in St. Louis. You're the toast of the town. They're talking about you differently than they've ever talked about you before. Mm-hmm. Your agent's calling you every day now instead of every two weeks. <laughs> mm-hmm. What would you yeah. do differently now? I would, I would get back into my controllables of focusing on the next game, on the next pitch. Uh, I would really not focus on the stats or the future. You know, I think what two things happen, right? We focus on the past that creates anxiety or uh, we focus on the future that creates uh, worry. So thinking about the future, I was definitely in the future. You know, if I keep doing this, then this is going to happen and then that's going to happen. And But, you know, what happened is there was a strike and none of it mattered. Season didn't finish. I ended up 12 and 10, I think, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, 12 and 10. And so the season never finished, and it was a moot point because I didn't free agency and the big bonanza never happened. So it was a lot of wasted energy on my part uh, during that stretch. You know, I think I came back around to rectify it a little bit, um, but my ERA was high. And and I remember, you know, so I would I would get back into thinking about my controllables, focusing on the next pitch, not thinking about the future, eliminating those distractions, whether it's the agent's call or the media, you know, not allowing myself to go down that path. It's interesting because I remember during that, during that time, I was talking with uh, the great Bob Gibson and uh, lean, leaning against the dugout steps in um, Old Bush. And I said, I said, Gibby, uh, they call him Gibby. I said, did you ever lose your confidence or anything when you were pitching? And he looked at me with his steely eyes and, you know, very handsome smile guy. And he's, you know, he's very friendly. He looks mean. Um, but he looked at me meanly and said, hell no. And I'm like, oh, God, that's why he's a Hall of Famer and I'm just an average big league pitcher. And he goes, I never wanted those SOBs to know what I was thinking. And so I'm like, oh, that didn't help me a whole lot. (laughs) So fast forward about 15 years, we're on the back of a bus in Florida at a a Cardinals fantasy camp activity, and we're riding the bus going to dinner. And Gibby's drinking some red wine. I get a beer. and You know, the, the former Cardinals are all in there. We're all telling stories. I said to Gibby, I said, hey, do you remember, uh, you probably don't remember this, but I talked to you on this. I was really struggling. I asked you if you lost, lost any confidence. And and he goes, what did I say? And I said, you told me. He, <laughs> he said, lied to you. <laughs> yep, he did. He said, I said, you told me hell no. And he goes, oh, God, was I lying to you? Of course I did. I just tried my best to not let them know that I lost my confidence. And I'm thinking, now you tell me, you know, 15 years later, you know, and I remember talking to Paul Molitor, the same conversation, Paul Molitor, ninth on the all-time hit list, uh, teammate of mine in Minnesota, one of the, you know, great player. Uh, I said, Molly, do you ever, you know, have you ever get to a place, you know, you lose your confidence? And he goes, yeah. He said, you know, if, if I am O for a series, you know, I am O for 10 or O for 12 or something, he goes, I feel like I've, I'm never going to get another hit. This is Paul Molitor. Oh, yeah. And But the difference is, he said, but if I'm in that situation, I know I can bunt for a hit, 
or I can just hit a ground ball to the right side because when you're in a slump, if you get a hit, you feel like you won the lottery. So he had a plan, and that's why he was so great because he knew it wasn't a matter of luck that was going to break this. He had a little bit of control over it. Using his skill because he had speed so he could bunt, and he had great hand-eye coordination so he could hit the ball to right field on purpose. You know, all those big league guys can. But So anyway, those are a couple of stories about confidence. I think everybody's got to have that. But I want to go back to you and a lot of athletes every single year. They're in the identical situation where they're playing better than they expected. And they just, it's uncanny that they start playing worse so that they come out where they thought they would be. Mm -hmm. And guys do it in golf all the time. Mm -hmm. Amateur golfers, weekend golfers, you shoot really, really well in the front nine. You start thinking about what, how cool it's going to be on 19th hole to be able to talk about, you know, hey, you got your personal best because you're obviously going to shoot just as good the, the back nine as you do the front nine. But instead of doing that, you end up being where you normally are. It's because, and I'm, and I'm trying to look for a root cause. From my perspective, the root cause is you're now thinking about the end result. You're thinking mm-hmm. about the consequences. You're thinking about the money. You're thinking about the fame. You're thinking about the destination instead of thinking about the next rep. Mm -hmm. And so I think the kryptonite for that situation is two things. One is be myopic. Don't look too far ahead. Just look at the next game, the next inning, the next pitch. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is give yourself permission to stop by the belief station, just like a gas station. And fill up with confidence and fill up with belief and increase your self-concept of what you can become Mm. so that now the governor goes away Mm -hmm. because it's not going to automatically kick in because you're not going too fast. You're not performing too high. The governor doesn't apply. Mm -hmm. You don't have bad performances because you're more dialed in on what's right in front of you. Yeah, well said. I agree. And that's right. You know, that's why golfers have a governor. Absolutely. And it happens, like you said, all the time. You have a, a bad front and you play good on the on the back because you don't care anymore. You just let go. You have a good front. You have a bad back. It's because you a bad back nine because you try to hang on and you're in future thinking. And I think that belief bank is a, is a really uh, – a good thing, you know, and it makes reference to, I saw this tweet the other day, I can't remember who put it out, but someone said that she had a picture of the words, I love you. And she's the, the woman who tweeted it said, you know, we say this to everyone else. How often do we say it to ourselves? And I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. And that's what, you know, you're, you're saying that, you know, have some compassion and your belief in yourself to know that you're capable of, doing this if you allow yourself to stay focused on the task and not get too far ahead of yourself, that you can have success and, and that's good that you deserve that. No, that was well said. I totally agree. Okay. I didn't forget. I want to hear the George Brett story. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Since you're a Brett fan. No. So my rookie year, we're in, uh, it's my third major league start. We're in Kansas City. They it was eighty six, so they had just won World Series in eighty five. George Brett, Willie Wilson, you know, a really good team. And I'm pitching and I'm coming off, you know, a really good spring training. I won my first major league game. I pitched well in my second game. This is my third game. And early in the game I hit I pitched I like to pitch inside and I hit Willie Wilson with a pitch and the count was 0 and 2. Well, actually before that I threw to Hal McCray and I got a warning for throwing inside and Lou Pinella came out and argued that, you know, I could pitch inside. So this is like the seventh inning. Willie Wilson comes in, I'm comes up, I'm winning three to one. I'm pitching really well. The count's 0 and 2 and I hit Willie Wilson and Willie charges the mound. And first and only time I ever got into a fight on the field. 
and Don Mattingly was at first, Mike Pagliarulo was at third, so they got in there, and I just kind of stood there waiting, and then the swarm of people come on top of you, so it's kind of like you're body surfing, and you get thrown under the <laughs> water, and so that's what happened to me. I, I was Next thing I know, I'm on the ground, and I look up, and I'm like, what the hell's going on? They took me out of the game. Dave Rigetti came in, got the save. Earlier in the game, I struck out Brett on a changeup. I'll never forget that. The story is, after the game in Kansas City, the locker rooms were separated by an elevator at the bottom of the stadium. And so you had the you know visitors and home players would have to get in the same elevator to go up to the buses. So I get into the elevator, and just like in the movies, I swear to God, here comes tanned, you know, George Brett with jeans, flip-flops, yeah, and he is um, just me and him in the elevator, and he goes, and I'm like, this George Brett, (laughs) and he looks at me, and he goes, kid, what are you doing throwing at our players, and I'm like, oh, God, you know, I said, you know, I was throwing up all over myself, and he goes, don't ever stop pitching inside. You did a great job tonight. And the door opened to the elevator, and he got out, and I was just standing there going, what just happened? So that was a really cool story for George to acknowledge that, especially for a rookie. So that's my George Brett story. Well, that's cool. Well, he was my guy, and I want to take a moment and just kind of um, debrief with you. Is there anything that you wanted me to ask that I didn't? Mm. No, I like I like the way that you came at it and emphasized the, you know, the little man. I, well, one thing is, you know, how imagery can play. You know, the control of the inner voice is really important. But you know, one way that we can also see ourselves being uh, priming ourselves to be successful is to see ourselves do it in advance using imagery. Uh, that was a big thing that I practiced. And How did you but, do that? And what did it look like? What did it smell like? And how did it impact your performance? Well, for me, I, I'd been practicing imagery since I was in high school with, I don't know if you remember Norman Vincent Peale, but he wrote The Power of Positive Thinking and he said, if you can see it and believe it, you can achieve it. So from high school, I start to use imagery as a way to see myself performing. So I literally would just, you know, put on some music, close my eyes, and imagine myself pitching. Did it in high school, did it a little bit in college, but then picked it back up when I got into pro ball. And it's just really powerful polysensory activity where you see yourself on the mound you know, you feel the ball in your hand, uh, you feel the pitching rubber under your feet, the, the clay of the mound, and you see the pitch going where you want it or getting the result that you want. Maybe it's a ground ball. And I'll tell you this, that before I went to spring training in February of 86, I imagined myself walking into Lou Pinella's office and having him tell me that I made the team based on what Vincent Norman Vincent Peale said, if I can see it and believe it, I can achieve it. So the the best result for me after when spring training ends would be to walk in the office and tell have the manager tell me that I made the team. So I created this image so powerful that I would cry. I literally would well up. And every night before I pitched in spring training that year, I would go out on the beach with my Walkman back then listen to music, imagine myself pitching against the next day's team on the beach, just dancing around, just really free and loose, throwing pitches, executing pitches. I pitched 20 consecutive scoreless innings, didn't give up a run. And with a week left in camp, the clubhouse guy came over and tapped me on the shoulder. And he said, hey, Lou wants to see you. And I walked across the big NY carpet in the middle of the locker room in Fort Lauderdale, and I literally walked into my dream. That was pretty cool. And he told me that I was starting the fifth game against the Brewers. So, okay. And I practiced it my whole career, and I, can, I have games that I won even before I even throw a pitch. 
That is so powerful. One of the things that I believe in is visualization, which is the same thing you're talking about. Yep. And it's basically creating a movie in your mind with you as the star actor and doing all the things that you do in your sport so that when you get in that situation, you've been there before. Mm-hmm. If you want to take that to another level, what you do is you create different scenes in the movie where the storms are in the movie mm-hmm. yep. and your response to those storms, your response to adversity. So let's just say you're a, a baseball pitcher and the umpire squeezes you and it was a strike, but they called it a ball. And then the next pitcher, or I'm sorry, the next batter, it's at the base and he, he can't get it out of his glove. Mm-hmm. And then the third batter hits a bloop single to right field, but it's so short, the guy from second can't score. So you got, you're in a situation with bases loaded, nobody out, and none of it was your fault. Mm-hmm. And what do you do? You, what do you, how are you going to respond? Mm-hmm. And if you can visualize that before you get in that situation, if you happen to be in that situation or a similar type situation, you already know what your strategy and your response is going to be. Amen. Yeah, it's situational. So imagery, you know, yeah, it's the same thing. And exactly what you said, movies. So the benefit to imagery is just what you said. Number one is it could be situational rehearsal of how are you going to cope with these things that are out of your control. Number two, it's error correction. So you can replay what happened so you can correct your whatever mistake that was. You could learn a new skill by practicing imagery. And also, you know, the big one is it primes you for success because you see yourself succeeding in advance. There's so many benefits to it. And uh, I just think that, you know, the combination of managing the little man and and priming yourself to succeed are two really powerful mental skills that help separate the pack of players with the same talent. Absolutely. Okay, Bob, share with the audience. They want to read your book. They want to find you on the web. They want to find you on social media. Share with people how they can find you. Yes. So uh, the book, uh, 90% Mental, uh, can be on uh, on Amazon, Google, Bob Tixbury. It will come up. And the my website is bobtixbury.com. Uh, there's some uh, – I do have some audio programs that are for fundamental skills for pitchers, mental skills that go over the components of self-talk, imagery, uh, breathing. And then I think it's at Bob underscore Tewksbury is the Twitter. And, you know, if if the listeners have any people that they know that want to work in their mental game, then I am in solo practice. I'd be happy to try to help. Bob, I want to thank you for being on Pro Mindset today. It was awesome to talk with a, a person that has – your life experience as a competitor, a major league pro player, and a student of, of mental science today and an author and connecting all the dots because the bottom line is what you talk about in terms of the separator, the distinguisher is always what's between the ears. Yeah. Every, every single time. hundred percent. It's like you said, the mindset. It's a pro mindset. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pro Mindset. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You can follow us on our website, promindsetpodcast.com, or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Pro Mindset Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you the next time.